Hey, what's up? Welcome to Basecraft. So I'm putting this episode out on a Sunday. Usually you get them out on a Wednesday, but I'm going on tour tomorrow. So I just want to get one out before I head away. Just doing another Crow Black Chicken tour in the UK. First one of 2022. Happy New Year, by the way. Looking forward to getting out loads of podcasts again this year. It'll probably be once a month. Um, but don't worry, the quality will remain the same. Um, yeah, just heading out up and down England with um, Crow Black Chicken and even getting to do our first Scottish gig in Edinburgh and Kinross. So I'll put the tour dates in the description. Today I'm chatting to Dave Swift. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Dave Swift. And if you haven't, you definitely have seen him on the telly because he's been in the Jules Holland Band for over 30 years. Um, anyone who knows what that show is, is aware of all the amazing musicians who come on it. And if you're not aware of what the Jules Holland um, TV show is, you're listening in America or something. Basically, it's a, a music show on the BBC that's been going for like 30 years. There's also been a radio show and um, just all any musician who is like touring an album or just for any reason comes on the show and just plays and it's, it's just excellent and um, I think Dave described it best usually um, the shows on TV are a lot of talking with a bit of music but the Jules Holland show is a lot of music with a bit of talking and that's why people love it and that's why it's lasted so long as it has so yeah Dave is an amazing bass player plays upright and electric a lot of upright on the show but um, equally proficient on both instruments and uh, we just chat it's a, it's a long one It's if you're on the podcast app it's a two-parter so we chatted for over two and a half hours so I really appreciate him giving me that much time and just some amazing insights because he's, he's had such a brilliant career and um it was, he does. He's an educator as well. So we got to chat about everything from being a session bassist, educating, and bass collecting. So when you put those three topics together, you know it's going to be a long one. So I hope you enjoyed this. I put all Dave's um, information in the description. And as usual, if you could like, subscribe to the podcast, all that stuff, it really helps me out. I've got merch in the, in the store still. Probably won't print more t-shirts. So if you want to buy the last few, grab them. And like I said, thanks for all the support in 2021. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm gonna I do these kind of Instagram live things at the moment. I don't know how many of you are on Instagram. Follow me on there at Stephen McGrath Base. So I'm catching up with former guests once a month live so you can ask questions. So I've already had Scott Whitley on and Simon Francis and it was really fun. So I'm gonna keep doing that. So follow me on Instagram to join in on those live chats where I catch up with all guests. And yeah, that's it guys. See you soon. Great. It was your birthday yesterday, was it? Uh two days ago. Uh, actually, on the uh, on the eleventh. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Twenty-one again. Oh, I, if if only, if only. No, actually, I I, I take that back. I, I I don't think I would like to be twenty-one again. Maybe physically, possibly, <laughs> but I, I think every other aspect of it, I'm, I'd much rather be fifty-eight than twenty-one. <laughs> yeah, the thought of doing all those things you would have done at twenty-one just makes you tired even thinking about them. Yeah, and, and all the mistakes, all the things that you got wrong. I just couldn't bear the thought of going through that again. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't like to think about it either. <laughs> Thank mm. God there was no technology back then to record it forever. Oh my goodness, yes. That, that's what it captured, captured forever in a day. Brilliant. So, well, shall we start? What, what was the beginning of your, your bass journey, I suppose? Because you're different. I think you're the first person I've had on that plays started on a, a brass instrument that's pretty cool um beginnings on mm. the bass i mean it, to be honest with you it's not that uncommon there's there's a, quite a few players that i know that did start on a particularly the trombone 
Uh, and particularly American guys, if you read a lot of interviews with American bass players, they a lot of them started off on brass instruments first. But um, but yeah, I mean, obviously for me, singing, it started with singing in, in school and church choirs. So that happened for a long time. And my brothers played guitars at home. But I think for me, um, I always liked the idea of playing an instrument. And I tried the guitar and I tried the piano we had at home. And I just didn't bond with it. I just didn't bond with, with any of them. So, so when I went to secondary school, I really wanted to play the saxophone because I'd been watching Top of the Pops and it seemed to be that the sax player, when, when there was one, always looked very cool. It looked a really cool instrument. And uh, so I went to the school and asked if I could play one of those. Um, and I went to one of these open evenings with my parents, you know, and they have all the sixth formers playing the instruments and they were all, and there wasn't a saxophone in sight. They didn't have one. They just had flutes and uh, flutes and uh, clarinets and things like that. And I, I really didn't fancy those. And I saw a trombone in the case and I just thought, you know, that looks, that looks like fun. But unfortunately, they gave that to somebody else. I ended up with a euphonium, uh, which, you know, for people who are not familiar with this, it, like a mini tube. And I thought to myself, hang on, how have I gone from wanting to play the saxophone to end up with a euphonium? So I played it for about six months. I studied with the teacher there, and I just, I just gave up because I thought this isn't, this isn't what I want to be doing. You know? mm. So years later, when I was 14, I got another chance at playing. So I, I, I stuck with the trombone. and I went to a teacher at my school and, uh, and he didn't want to take me on. Well, it wasn't him. It was the school, really, because they thought I was too old at 14 uh, because, you know, I'm on the verge of leaving school. And they yeah. only really wanted these these teachers to take on pupils who had many years ahead of them to to get competent on the mm. instruments so but he stuck his neck out for me uh and he he said because i saw some potential in you so he said i got you the trombone you went away for two weeks which i remember doing and i just loved it so much i fell in love with the instrument came back and he took me on as his pupil and i actually met up with him last year oh brilliant i hadn't seen him for almost 40 years and so it was a good opportunity for me to thank him because that early training on the trombone he taught me how to read music and of course, bearing in mind, the trombone slide has no set positions. Mm. So when I took up the bass a year later when I was 15 and I took up double bass and fretless bass guitar, the, the trombone was great training for that because I'd already you know, had to use my ears a lot to sort of get my intonation correct. And also the muscle memory of, of the positions on the trombone. Mm. Uh, same, same with double bass. There aren't any markings on there. So it was a perfect instrument for me to... Uh, transition onto the onto the bass really so it's quite different in the way you play it's quite a melody based instrument on like if you had been playing the tuba you would have been learning pretty much bass <laughs> yeah. guitar without on a, a different on a brass yeah. instrument well i do i do play tuba as well but i mean that's but to a lesser extent but i mean i was definitely i was a professional trombone player when i left school i was actually making a living on it but um but yeah as, as you say the trombone and the range of it as well is so huge that when i played the trombone i had to learn to read four different clefs you know because you literally have to read treble mm. clef because if you're playing a brass band everything's written treble clef but then i was playing in orchestras which wrote a lot in bass tenor and alto clef because like i said this the, the instrument has such yeah. a huge range so so my reading was already sorted before I before I, I even picked up a bass, I could already read anything I needed to do that, you know. So all I had to do 
a year later when I took up uh, double bass and bass guitar and I was self-taught on that I didn't have lessons to begin with so all I had to do then was learn the mechanics of the instruments because I could already read and back then everything that I was given as a bass player was written music mm. so it was almost like that was the hard part over yeah. and done with uh, like but, it was almost know, unbeknownst to you you were getting set up to be a session musician yeah. like doing that stuff <laughs> that people don't want to do learn how to read yeah, exactly. And it, and for me, it was a real joy as well. It wasn't a chore. I mean, I actually really enjoyed learning to read uh, and I enjoyed the discipline of it as well. You know, that was that I really enjoyed that because I wasn't a very good academic at school. I, I don't have any qualifications other than a few trombone exams. So for me to find something that I was really firstly, finally passionate about and actually had some aptitude for was really important for me uh, but obviously it took me towards the end of school like I said I was 14 15 when this was happening whereas most kids started to play instruments when they're much much younger than that yeah. but then a lot of a lot of them that I know didn't carry on with that they didn't become pro players so maybe the fact that I came to it so late and became that passionate about it so late maybe that's what propelled me further on you mm. know and, and enabled me to have this career so and do you think the the reading is still important for players coming up today? Like, should should they concentrate on that? Their if you know people are limited in their time these days, do you think it's something worth putting your time into? I think it it depends really because a, a lot of people that I know, um, you know, they they learn to play by ear, and now they want to get into reading, and because they're older, they're finding it quite difficult. Uh, so I kind of think I probably did it a fairly good way around because uh, when I was kind of younger I guess my brain was more sort of capable of taking on a lot more stuff and, and I had that keenness to do it but I mean for me back then it was a necessity you know as a session musician back in the day you had to learn you had to be able to read music because all the gigs and work I was doing which was mostly kind of theatre work uh, studios uh, and it was you inevitably you got given a piece of music with a written bass part. I very rarely, if ever, got a chord chart or someone said, just make it up. Yeah. It was always written down. So if you couldn't read back then, you were you were done for. Now, I think these days, uh, you know, in the session world, it, it's again, a lot of the time, if you're playing in more of like a commercial pop band, it, it is more against you'll get played a backing track and you've just got to come up with something. So in that instance, you you it's better to have good ears mm. than, than anything else and be able to pick up things fast. But say, for instance, if you wanted to be an orchestral musician these days, or if you wanted to play in West End shows, you still need to be able to read to the, to the highest level. You know, you've got no choice. If you can't read, both of those things are off the table for you. But then again, you know, if you don't want to do that, then you could argue that it's not that important. I mean, not everyone in the Jules Holland band reads music. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly me and the horn players that, that do. So, but we all end up playing with the same artists. We all end up playing the same tunes. So everyone mm. who doesn't read finds their own way of doing it. But for me personally, it's still, it's still important to be able to do both. I still get called to play by ear, to improvise, but I also still get called to read written music and and if i could only do one or the other of those it would limit my options and my earning capacity D definitely like um i only ever did one reading show and i'm not a good reader <laughs> uh -huh. and, and i realized why it's so important for doing a musical because you're looking it's a two-hour show but almost nothing repeats there's like little hits with the drums and 
Oh if, yeah, yeah. If you can remember all of the base hits for the two hours, power to you, but to like to anyone <laughs> listening, but I couldn't. I so I barely got through it with the reading. But for those, it's just a different thing, isn't it? Those musicals because there's oh, so yeah. many little intricacies to the parts, like. Sure, but you know they're 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 quite coveted gigs because if you actually get the gig, if you are the bass player on the musical, you know, and it's a long run, you you've got that job for years, uh, and. In the old days, a lot of, well, probably even now, a lot of musicians, the only way they could get mortgages were to take on West End shows because it was the closest thing you could get to having a day job. Mm. Uh, you know, having a gig day in, day out, month, year after year, whatever. So, so they're really still quite coveted gigs. But then I suppose the downside to it is, you know, you are playing the same thing every night and you need to play it exactly the same. You need to have that consistency. Um. But, you know, if, if you're happy with that, I mean, for me, I, I've depped on shows for people before. I've sat in and depped for them on occasions, but I've never actually done here in London a full show myself because I've always been too busy touring uh, doing that side of it. And I kind of like that. I, I like that, you know, I like the travel aspect when we can. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going over to you guys next week. So you're still rocking over right? in England. <laughs> gigs. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so far, so good. I mean, we just finished a big tour with Jules Holland for three months and none of it was cancelled. So so that was good, you know. But um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it, it was crucial to be able to do both. But I would say now at this point in my career, I do less reading than I've ever done before, because my wife, Lucy, is a professional jazz singer, so I do a lot of gigs with her uh, on, uh, on acoustic bass. And most of the time you're turning up playing with, with other jazz musicians and you're just playing from the top of your heads. You know, mm. you agree on a, a, a list of classic stand, jazz standards mm. and you're just playing them and you're improvising and you're soloing and there isn't anything written down. So, so ironically, you know, these days my... The need for me to read is a lot less than it used to be at the very beginning. It's kind of everything sort of switched around, you know. So these days for me, it's much more important to have good ears and to be able to pick up stuff fast. And also to have a good repertoire as well. I've noticed that, um, you know, when, when I started out and you'd be like in a function band and you'd have a big pad of music. And the first lot of the pad would be like dance tunes, like foxtrots and waltzes and whatever. And then the second half would be pop stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was all written out, all the bass parts written. And you just turn the page and you play okay. what's there. But um, these days, I, I don't even know if bands have those pads of music anymore. And I think what, what it's more a case of is the, the people you're working for expect the musicians just to have this vast repertoire of songs in their heads. Mm. You know, you, and I get this all the time. I get called for gigs and you've got to be able to play, um, you know, sort of old school R&B blues. You've got to play bebop. You've got to be able to play funk, dance music, you know, and, and there's nothing there. You've just got people calling out tunes or giving you keys. Yeah. And this is the reason why then your ears need to be super developed um, to be able to cope with that. So it's, you know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to think about there. <laughs> a lot yeah, of I pressure. think the, 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 a lot of the stuff, is harder these days it's it's funny it's tech it's easier because you can have youtube but i think it's harder because youtube is there and it's a shortcut so like if you want to learn a song but you, you sh before you would have learned it by ear and you would have developed that muscle but now the temptation yeah. is just like oh i'm sick of trying to learn this jacko lick by ear 
YouTube. <laughs> exactly. And, and also, you know, you do have, you do have the benefit of, of with our phones and, and, you know, and you can get cord charts up there. If you're really stuck, you know, you can, you can call upon cord charts, which, and that is useful. I've definitely done that. If there's something that I literally just don't know, or sometimes, uh, you know, you just have to, we, we did a, a session once uh, years ago. We played with, with Jules. We played with Amy Winehouse quite a bit mm. over the years. And uh, we did a couple, we did some TV stuff with her. But one, one occasion, she was a guest on Jules's radio show, his Radio 2 show. And um, we knew that she was the guest, but we weren't told uh, what she was going to be performing. And it was just the rhythm section of, 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 the, of the band. So she turned up at the, the studio and we all said, hi, how you doing? And, stuff. and we're all excited, great to see her. But we're all sitting there thinking, what on earth are we going to play? Because we've got to record it like mm. in the next 20 minutes. So she decided on, on one particular track and her, whoever she was with, her manager or agent, got the, the CD and played it in the control room. Lovely. And we had to sit there in front of Amy and we had to learn it there and then on the spot so you know so they played through once and we're all sitting there kind of going oh yeah it's, it's this is then we'll say can we hear it another time and you and you got the bits that you missed the first time and i think at best we, we may have listened to it three times but no more than that and you and you know or we knew that if we'd have had to ask like any more times then it would have started to kind of yeah you know, she would have probably got a little bit restless. Her manager would have. We'd have started to feel a bit embarrassed. Mm. You know, so I think you know we 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 got it pretty much after two, perhaps three listens through. But this wasn't writing anything down. This was just learning it by ear. On no, the no, spot. no cheat sheets. No, no, no. And and then you've got to play it with Amy Winehouse. You know, so Crazy. so that's one of the most extreme. To, and, and we had to do that a few times with artists. You have to learn it right there on the spot, which. You know, it, it's tough and it's it's a high pressure thing, but it, it's it's so good for you. Yeah. You know, it's it's great for you, for your ears. And, uh, you know, it, it just makes you sort of rise to the occasion, really. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's very good training. And when you're doing that, are you thinking in like it goes to the five, to the one, to the four, that kind of thought process? Or are you just like playing it by ear and just following your ear? Yeah, I think I think it's more the latter, to be honest. You know, I mean, I do use if I'm doing some some charts, really, really quick charts. I will use Roman uh, numerals. I will use the the, the the number system. But I think in that instance, uh, you know, because I'm a big melody fan as well. You know, when I when I'm playing bass with a lot of artists, and I, some people say, "Oh, I just listen to the drums. The drums is key." And I'm not saying it's not important, but for me, actually, the the melody is is really important for me i mean i i bounce off that quite a lot and i sometimes phrase with with singers so i think i just generally listen to it more as a song as opposed mm -hmm. to going through it thinking that's the one that's six whatever you know i think that for me would would cloud my mind even more you know i just try and you know just play it as musically as possible but oh. I, I, again it just comes from a lot of years of experience you know because i've this year i've been in the industry for 41 years so I'd like to think that my ears are at least half decent. <laughs> no, that's and I think with that kind of experience, like you can make, you'll make choices outside of the obvious notes. Like I was transcribing a, a Guy Clark song yesterday for to play with a friend of mine, and I got the the chords wrong. I was playing like the third over one of the chords because it was following uh -huh. the melody, like you were saying. 
So sure. it might make more interesting choices on the base when you're following the melody than just being stuck to the chord progression. Absolutely. And, and also phrasing as well. Uh, you know, some, sometimes it's as much about the, the way you phrase things um, by listening to, you know, we, we just did Jules's New Year's Eve TV show and we had Joy Crooks on there. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the song that we did with her, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's triplets in it, like triplet crotchets, which is like the, the, the melody that she's singing. And I was definitely hitting those triplets with, with her, you know, because it just felt, it felt the natural thing to mm. do. Sort of. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's a melodic thing as well, but it's also kind of rhythmic, which is why I like to listen to the, um, you know, the vocalist so much. That's that's interesting. It's a really good approach. Like not as many people talk about doing it that way. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just you know, if if you're just kind of following following the drums, uh, which again, you know, you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but it, it just, it, but it can also then prevent you from from being a bit more creative. Whereas if if you've got something else that you can bounce off. And, and I guess you could say you could do it with the keyboard or the, the guitar, or whatever. But I mean, I think for me, the, the vocal is so important, uh, you know, that that's, that's what I focus on probably as much as anything else. Uh, are there any albums that come to mind with that? Like for me, uh, Jacko's work with Joni Mitchell has a lot of that call and response oh, yeah. with the vocal melodies. Are there any albums that you think people would listen to to hear that kind of approach to bass like? You know, it's it's you know, off the top of my head. It's kind of quite quite difficult to think, but I mean, you you're absolutely right. I mean, those are some of the best examples I can think of because, and, and it's obviously that thing that with Jacko and Joni. I mean, I mean, he had so much freedom there, and she wanted him to be uh, as 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 upfront as she was as far as as a, as a performer. I think it's a, with me. It's definitely more. I'm I'm in a lot more commercial situations where you know i'm not really able to be that flamboyant mm. uh, i mean some people sometimes people say to me oh you know why, why why aren't you you know go a bit more crazy on tv with these things and i always say the same thing well i don't want to be fired exactly i was thinking the same <laughs> you know, thing yeah. because uh, you know i mean the thing is when i'm when i'm playing with with lucy for instance uh, you know and we're playing jazz stuff because like i said i mean i'm just playing improvised walking bass lines so they're completely from the top of my head, but at the same time, they're still quite uh, um, like a regular thing. They're nothing too crazy. I mean, look, it's different when I get to solo, mm. but in a jazz setting, that's different. That's where the singer stops and then it's my turn to shine. Whereas I think that the thing with Jacko and Joni, there was much more, they were much more equal partners yeah. in that musical. And that's quite unique. I think unless you're, unless you're in a, a setting where you, you've written stuff between you, you know, uh, or, or, or you're doing cover versions of those songs. I think it's, it's very difficult to be that openly creative and that daring with it. You know, you, for me, like I said, in, I play in such commercial situations that, uh, you know, I just need to keep it like regular and steady. And it's just a, more a case of just the occasional bar where you can put a little fill in there mm. or a slide or whatever, you know, but I can't, I can't go too far with that. Because we're playing with pop artists, we're playing with rock, funk, soul artists, you know. And if I get too carried away, I'll probably get a dirty look. <laughs> yes, I was thinking they might throw. Someone will be. Like, someone will be doing this. <laughs> yeah, that, that bass player has to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly that. But going back to switching from trombone to 
bass and double bass like um who, what kind of artists were influenced you at the time were you just listening to what was popular kind of okay well um like i said as, as a trombonist because I, I really liked jazz when i was a, a kid uh i mean and anything that came on tv or, or uh, and, and musicals as well my, fa- my family were a big fan of those mgm musicals and stuff so uh, and a lot of jazz tunes came from those those musicals. Actually, that, that's where a lot of the jazz standards came from. But um, I think when when I I remember when I switched to well, I didn't I didn't stop playing the trombone. I just also started to play mm. bass. So um, on double bass, um, I, I used to go to the, my local library in my hometown of Wolverhampton, uh, and I used to in those days you could borrow records. <laughs> and it's, it sounds so ancient now. Yeah. You had to go into a building with your with your tickets to borrow vinyl albums. It just shows you how old they I still am. do but that in Cork in the Rory oh, Gallagher really? Library. Okay. It's there's a music library where you can borrow CDs. Oh, fantastic! Well, I mean, and it was it was great. I I, I loved it, you know. And but I was always borrowing sort of, um, you know, because I thought to myself, well, who were the great sort of jazz double bass players that I need to listen to? And of course the same names kept coming up, which was Ray Brown, Ron Carter, Niels Henning, Austin Pedersen. Most of these guys were playing with Oscar Peterson. So yeah. I knew that if I borrowed Oscar Peterson albums, then I'd be, I'd be doing okay. Cause mm. he always used fantastic bass players. So, so yeah, those, those were the main guys, particularly Ray Brown. And I had a, I had a bass method book called the Ray Brown bass method, which I still have. So, so yeah, I was listening to him, him a lot for, for double bass. But I remember distinctly with, uh, with bass guitar, because obviously I was watching Top of the Pops at the time. And I used to love all that two-tone stuff, uh, you know, like the specials, mm. the selector, the beats. And I really liked that kind of stuff. But then I also liked all sorts of, you know, I, I love Kate Bush and um, Blondie, all, all sorts of things. But, I, but when I think when, when the light bulb went off for me was when I was playing trombone in a, in, in, in a band and there was a, a fellow trombonist next to me who's a, a friend of mine to this day. Uh, and he said, you've just started to play bass, haven't you? I said, yeah, yeah, it's very recent. And he said, you really need to listen to the guy on this album. He said, I'll lend it to you. So he bought this album in, and, it, and I looked at it, and it was a weather report nice. album. And it was, uh, it was Night Passage, was the particular album. And I didn't know who Weather Report was. And I'm looking at the bass, who's this bass player? And I'm thinking, Jaco? Jack, Jack, what, what, you know, but what an unusual looking name. And I thought to myself, well, you know, because up until this point, everything I'd been playing had been sort of quite sort of simplistic. You know, there hadn't been anything, no solos or anything like that, just simple lines. And I put that album on and I listened to it and heard Jacko and Weather Report for the first time. And I just thought, oh my God. <laughs> I thought, what have I done? What have I done? I just literally couldn't believe it. I was, I was shocked, uh, terrified, but <laughs> elated all at the same time. Um, and I remember thinking, I honestly remember thinking, I thought, that's the way you play the bass. That is how it's supposed to be played. It just, mm. to me, what he was doing and his dexterity and his speed and his note choices and his lyricism, everything just did this for me. And I just thought, that's it. That's how you play um and and i did attempt to learn some of the stuff on there i did a couple of transcriptions i mean not not any of the really crazy complex stuff mm. but just more of his of his bass lines 
because to me that he yeah he became the the guy you know he was the ultimate player I thought guard, that's yeah. how you do it that's how you do it uh, and you know I mean for me now he's still in my top three my top three favorite bass guitarists of, of all time he has to be in there so so that was quite a shock uh, to the system but like I said it changed everything so after that I just wanted everything with him on so so yeah so I guess like Jacko for me was the early influence on bass guitar and then on double bass it would have been guys like Ray Brown uh, and Stanley Clark I guess you know but but Stanley's playing was so was so out there I mean at least with Ray Brown I could actually work that stuff out mm. but Stanley was playing so fast I didn't have the facility then <laughs> to slow stuff down kind of thing so I just thought okay I'll, I'll leave that <laughs> I'll leave that to one side uh, and focus on the, uh, but you know, I, I never wanted as much as uh, I admired those guys personally. I never wanted to be a soloist. I never wanted to be a an out and out fusion solo player or anything mm. like that. I, I still enjoyed playing in a band environment, and I I enjoyed providing that foundation and kind of making everybody else sound good. Mm. <laughs> you know, well, think, that's that's good for a session bass player. That's kind of yeah. the mentality, isn't it? Yeah, because when I sang in the choir, I started off as a treble, then moved to alto, but eventually ended up singing bass. And and that for me, just holding those low notes, singing those low notes and giving that foundation, that bed. I was listening to the bigger picture thinking this this sounds and feels great to me. And that's that's how I felt when I became a bass player. You know, as, as much as I loved and admired the flamboyance of Jacko and the, and the technical ability and the virtuosic playing, I never thought to myself, that's, that's what I want to do. That's the player I want to be. Mm. I just thought, you know, you can take little elements of that and you can be inspired. But I just kind of thought with what I'm, with what I'm planning to do, which is, you know, be more of a session band player. It was more important for me to listen to the, the more regular stuff that they were playing. Um, you know, the more, accompanying type thing but you know i still like all the flash stuff as well yeah, i just don't class, i don't yeah. i don't always admit it that much <laughs> do you ever see do you ever watch the dvd um i had it years ago uh ray brown oscar peterson and the danish guy oscar Pedersen. have you seen that oh uh niels henning austin Pedersen. well interestingly it's it's funny because it's it's cool i think it's called oscar peterson and the bassist's jam yeah, it's I think crazy cool. playing on it. Okay, so so check this out. So uh, when I was uh, when I was at school playing the trombone, and I just started to play bass as well. We went on a trip to Norway with a school band, and and I was in a music shop there, and I actually got that album, and it was vinyl, mm. but of course it was all all in Norwegian, so I couldn't read it, but I knew that it was. Oscar and those two guys. And so I got it home and listened to it. And I thought, this is, this is phenomenal. I, it was, I listened to it all the time. And then decades later, decades, maybe 30 years later, I was in New York uh, and I was in a, a record shop. And not only did I find it on the same thing on CD, which I thought was great, I then discovered there's a DVD of it. <laughs> and I never knew this. So for like 30, 30 years, I never knew that somebody had filmed that. I'd just only ever been listening to the record. So then I, then I watched it and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's such a great opportunity to see, to see them in action. Uh, you know, because obviously Niels Pedersen took over from Ray Brown yeah. in the Oscar Peterson trio. Ray started there. But it was a great, and, and that's the thing for me, you know, learning to play the bass, because I, I had the occasional lesson 
uh, I studied, I had a couple of lessons with a, an orchestral player when I was early on, because I wanted to get my bow technique together. Um, and obviously an orchestral player was the best person to study with because they use a bow all the time. But for me, a lot of how I learned to play was just watching players. So on TV, I used to avidly watch Top of the Pops and I would just be looking at the bass player's hands and what he was doing and how he was playing stylistically. And then of course, when Jules had his TV series, The Tune, that he used to co-present with Paula Yates in the eighties. Same thing, that all the live bands on there, I'm just watching how their hands are moving mm. and how they're, what are they doing? So, so I learned as, as much about playing the bass visually as I did a, a, anything else, you know, so. It's kind of all you had to do back then, isn't it? You had to just watch Top of the Pops. <laughs> or well, yeah, yeah. Well, because, you know, they, they and obviously, I mean, I, I started out in, in, the, in the late 70s. So there, there was those very little resources. I mean, I had a couple of books. I had a couple of Carol Kay, how to play the bass books, you know, but I, I couldn't find a bass guitar teacher at all. They just, if there were some around, I wasn't aware of them. And it's the same with double bass teachers. Well, it took me a while to find one. Whereas these days they're, they're coming out the woodwork, you know, people offering lessons, oh, and, yeah. and, uh, you know, especially if there's no gigs, but, um, but back then it was really tough. You know, you had to just grab any little thing you could, a little mm -hmm. bit of TV, something out of a book. Uh, I, and I worked in a music shop for, a, for a, a, about eight months in, in, in Wolverhampton. I worked, worked in the shop there. And that was pretty cool because my manager, who was also like an early bass mentor to me, a guy called Craig Fenney, he was, he was a great bass player. And he would show me stuff in the shop when we had quiet days. He also brought in some cassette tapes of Jacko that I hadn't heard. But then you'd also got players coming in who'd want to test gear out. I was only 17 at the time, so these guys were older. So I'd get to listen to them as well and watch them. So it was literally, I, you know, you just have to grab, I had to grab whatever I could, little snippets of information, uh, you know, and, uh, and it was quite difficult to do, really, because it, was, it, it wasn't very organised. Like, like these, these days, you can go on courses, you can go on YouTube, but back then it was just clutching at straws. <laughs> But I think that as well, like back then is good because now you just take little, you kind of pass over this information and you think you've learned it, but it's gone. Yeah, but you think you've sure. got it in so you don't put the time in because there's so much there. You don't yeah, just yeah. get stuck into this one topic that you need to really that's, stay on. That's absolutely right. And the other thing that I, to add to that, uh, and I don't wish to be unkind to people, but what I've noticed is, you know, conversing with people online and, and in person, there is, I think the people that are the most successful as musicians in this industry are the ones that have always go the extra mile to, to do something. So like I said, when I was a kid, I'd walk to the library, uh, you know, or I'd, 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 I'd go to music shops and I'd buy music books and I'd, I'd do research. I'd I was studying all the time and I still do. Even today, I'm always studying. I'm always practicing. I just never stopped. And I think what's happened is some, some players have gotten a little bit lazy uh, because I've noticed that they just some people just don't want to do the work or they don't want to put in as much time. And even like research and stuff. So I get people coming to me and they'll ask me about a certain player, a certain style, a certain instrument. And I'll kind of think, okay. And then I'll go online and I'll just put in what they've asked me. <laughs> and there's all these reams yeah. and reams of information. And I'm thinking to myself, well, 
how, why haven't they done that? Mm. Why have they come to me to ask me what they can find themselves like this yeah. on the internet? And I mean, okay, maybe sometimes it's because they want a connection, uh, you know, but sometimes I just kind of think it's just, they're not kind of, they haven't got that sort of, um, that tenacity, you know, that drive that you need to succeed in this industry. You know, if, if, if you think I want to learn to do something, you know, what, do the research, you know, sort of look online, get a book, anything, but don't just kind of go to some person and say, well, how do you do that then? Or, or what, what do you think I should do and stuff like that? Because it's, you know, you do need to have a lot of grit in this, in this industry. You need, you need to make an effort. You need to sort of work. You need to have some initiative yeah really uh you know and and I, and I can often tell the people that don't have that because like <laughs> it's like they're coming to ask me it's like you know I don't know everything but I'll end up just going onto the internet mm. and telling them what I've read and I'm thinking well you should be doing that <laughs> you know you make a good point you're it's almost like then you need to get that grit because okay you gave them the solution today but you're not going to be there every time they need the solutions they need to yeah. find their own way like and have put in their own work you know yeah exactly i think people these days they just like not everyone of course but uh, you know a lot of people like shortcuts and they think life is about shortcuts uh, and it really is you know i mean if you i mean i read a, a great book a few years uh, ago called uh, called bounce uh, and i can't remember uh, the name of the author but basically it's it's about debunking the myth of natural born genius. Mm. And, it, and it talks about a lot of athletes uh, as well as musicians. And it just gives examples of where these people, like, and it's talking about people like Michael Jordan. I'm a big basketball fan, so that resonated with me. Uh, Tiger Woods, great tennis players, whatever. And, it, and it's because we only see the end product. We only see these guys in these uh, you know, competitions and tournaments uh, and, and we just see the polished version and we just and we see them moving so fast and scoring all these baskets and we just kind of think it's god-given they've got this god-given talent it's a blessing from heaven whatever and actually this book talks about the it's the effort and the yeah. work they put in prior to that you know it's more to do with the hours you know michael jordan said i've missed thousands of shots thousands upon thousands but obviously, if you keep doing that, you're practicing and honing that, so you, you make less and less mistakes. That's what we see at the other end of it. Mm. But we don't see that because he doesn't want us to see it. We probably don't want to see it, but that's what's happening. Yeah. And it's the same with, we're saying with music, the reason why some musicians are so incredible at what they do is, is not just because they've, they've just got this thing that's heaven sent or whatever you want to call it. It's just because they've worked damn hard. You know, I mean, I, I just had to write a little mini article uh, for a magazine on the on the famous American jazz bassist, Charles Mingus, who's one of my favorite musicians. He was a great jazz bass player, mm. but he's people probably know him more for his compositions. So and again, that thing where if I'm asked to sort of write a little bit of stuff, I, I know a lot about him. but I don't know everything. So I I did some research, you know, I, I've got a couple of reference books and I, and I did some work. I, I read a lot more about Charles Mingus and I learned stuff I didn't know about. Uh, and, you know, he did study very early on uh, when he was like 17, 
with because um, he was a trombone player as well. He studied trombone and cello, funnily mm. enough, beforehand. But when he took up the double bass, he studied with a, another American jazz bass player. And this this guy called Red Calendar said, you know, Mingus's thing at the time was that he wanted to be the greatest bass player that's ever lived. That's what Mingus would say. That was his mantra almost. Uh, and apparently, according to Red, the guy that taught him, he said, and after that, Mingus would often practice for 17 hours a day. Oh, my God. That's not... Uh, you know, and the same thing. We, I mean, Charlie Parker did the same thing. Now, it may not have been every day, but I bet he did it for, like, quite a while. Mm. Um, and, and then he goes on to say the reason why Mingus could do... And, and Mingus was an amazing... I mean, he was a big guy, had these big big sort of hands but he was very agile he was very very fast amazing technique he really was a virtuosic player and um and you know and the, re the his teacher said the reason why he could do all those things was because of the, the work he put in is because of those 17 hours a day practice thing he mm. said that's how you get like that you, that just doesn't sort of happen overnight and you don't just have it within you uh you know and and it's tricky because I guess back then he probably didn't have much else going on in his life. So for him that, and, and of course he was dealing with sort of racism and the social in, injustice, no yeah. doubt. So for him, it was like escapism as well. So it became even more important. It wasn't just a hobby. This for him was like escapism. This was a, a way to change his life. And the trouble this in modern day times, we've all got so many distractions, you know, I mean, I, I became a dad only four years ago. So this late in life, and that's so obviously that takes up time. But you know, admin stuff. I don't know. There's there's all sorts of yeah. things to take away from that. So that's the reason why when I was younger, that's when I did most of my practice. I didn't do 17 hours a day, and perhaps had I have done 17 hours a day, I would have been better than I am now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, it depends what you're doing for those 17 hours. A lot of people, well, like yeah, to, they like to throw those numbers out there. Said I did 10 hours today. But it was sure, probably, sure. it might have been ten good hours. You might have been better well, off. Well, that, that, that's true. That's true. Good hours. You, you, you can achieve very little if if you if you're doing the wrong thing in ten hours, you know. But uh, but again, it's you know it really is. I think I guess what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is that I think you know if you want to be really good and and very technically proficient, you know you just have to put in the time. I mean, mm. that, it's as simple as that. You know, you have to put in the hours. And, the, and it's about repetition. The more you do something and the more you repeat doing it, the better you're going to get it. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. So, um, but it, I, I think it's, it's difficult because it's, again, pe I think people want shortcuts these days. People see, you know, they go on social media and they see people with all these followers and they see people getting endorsements. Uh, and they, you know, they just want the, they just want the shortcut. How can I get to that? without you know and not realizing that i mean for me for instance i mean i i you know i do have an endorsement deals with a number of companies but i didn't i was a pro musician for 15 years before i got a single endorsement you know i was with jewels for like four or five years before i got an endorsement prior to that i was on tv but i was still going to the shop and buying strings and buying plectrums you know? <laughs> Because as far as I was concerned, the guys that were getting endorsements and deservedly so were, were guys like Marcus Miller and Stanley Clark and all this stuff. I didn't dream for one second that that would happen to me. And it wasn't a priority. For me, it was all about the craft. The most important thing for me was, 
you know, was, was being the best musician that I could and always learning, always studying, always evolving. And anything else I thought that happens is a bonus. But um, I've had messages sent to me <laughs> by younger players. And, and one, you know, the first thing they ask me is, how do I get an endorsement? I don't understand this thing because, like, what do you want? <laughs> like, bass guitars are so cheap these days. The, the only endorsement I ever want is strings. Like, how many bass sure. guitars do you want? How many pedals do you want? And they're not yeah. even that dear, really, like, compared oh, to I, what they were years ago. Like, Do you know what? One of my, my the second bass guitar I ever bought, which was an Aria Pro 2, and it was a, a copy of a fretless Fender Precision with a, a, a maple fingerboard. Beautiful instrument. I wish I'd have kept it, to be honest. But, I mean, I bought that in, I think, 1979, and that cost me 250 quid in 1979 That's, yeah what's that now like it's crazy you know i mean bases are cheaper now than they were back then sort of thing but no i think what it is it's it's less to do i mean the appeal of getting something for free is definitely there but i think it, it's like a kudos thing so in other words people know that if you if you get an endorsement it's not just about being given something for free it's about the company using you in a in an advert you know mentioning your name Mm. Uh, uh, you know, you might get a, a you might get a picture of you at the Nam show or something like that. So people are aware of that as well. It's it's the exposure, I guess, and it's and it's almost become a badge of honor. You know, getting an endorsement, it's become this big badge of honor. Like, you know, <laughs> I've, I've got I've got an endorsement. I've I've made it. I've made <laughs> it. And uh, and the trouble is, of course, that some companies just give out stuff for free willy nilly to, to whoever asks for it. And they and they're not very selective. And I think that's a real problem, because what happens is it dilutes everything. Uh, you know, it just means that there are certain players that are, you know, not doing high profile work. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I've done lots of stuff that isn't high profile. But, you know, if you're just sort of giving someone anything and everything and, and, and they're not being seen with it. Yeah. You know, what's the point of that? Because you, you give something so that person is going to give you a, a exposure, you know. And also what it means is if, if you're giving stuff away for free uh, and, and the, pe the people that are receiving it uh, don't really care about the quality of this or they're not in love with it, but because they've been giving it for free, they're going to kind of give it exposure. Yeah. And, that, and that's a really false that's a false economy to me. Mm. I mean, I, I have been offered a lot of different free things over the years and I've said no to the majority of them because I don't, I don't believe in it. It's not what I want. I know it's not going to sort of suit me. So I've turned around loads of times and said, no, no, thanks. So I've sent stuff back and you know, you, you've got to have some integrity <laughs> at some you point do. in your life, you know, because the thing is, I, I just want to be, because I don't want to be sort of seen playing something or using something and representing a company that, that I know there's something not good here. Yeah. It's kind of faulty or in the same way. Because then people are then are going to question me and my integrity and my choices. They're going to think, hang on, I thought Dave had more <laughs> integrity than this. Than, <laughs> integrity and at the end of the day, that, yeah. why do you want something free if it's kind of crap anyway? Like it's just going to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. But, but some people do because it just. It just makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them feel fulfilled and it makes them uh, feel as though they've accomplished something, you know, and it's, mm. and, and it's a distorted reality, really. You know, it should be, it's really about the craft. And for me, 
that's what it that's what it's always about you know all i ever want to do on a daily basis is to be a better musician i mean i actually took up the guitar last year it was one of my lockdown projects because i'd always struggled with playing the guitar before because i'd never had enough time to dedicate to it and because i don't play a chordal instrument i mean i understand the keyboard i can play chords but i'm not a piano player mm. so all my instruments have predominantly been monophonic you know trombone and basses so i really I'd wanted to play the guitar for ages. So that, so I, I took up the guitar last year and I've been doing lots of practice and hopefully my, me and my wife, Lucy, we could maybe do some jazz duo gigs. Yeah. Cause you can't do like jazz duo gigs with voice and double bass for two hours. People do it, but I don't get it. Like honestly, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I have kind of funny opinions on that. I've seen like these videos where these guys are doing these amazing arrangements. They're playing the bass and they're tapping it. And I'm like, that's really awesome. But a lad playing three chords on the guitar would be better at a company. Sure, this. sure, sure. So, yeah, I, I thought to myself, you know, that was the idea. I thought we can do some some nice little low-key jazz gigs, you know, but it would be nice playing a chordal instrument. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the other thing I say to, to a lot of bass players uh, and, and my students in particular. I sort of say it's really good to, to have some knowledge of a chordal instrument. It will enhance your bass playing so much. Uh, I mean, particularly on the piano, because visually, it's 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 a very good representation it's it's a lot easier to understand harmony on the piano but even if you don't learn to play it uh you know just the study of harmony uh on there will be a big help because actually when i moved to london i i could read music and i could play all different styles but my knowledge of harmony was wasn't very good at all so one of the first things i did when i got here to london was was study harmony privately I didn't go to college or uni or anything like that, but I, I, had, I had private lessons with people studying that because that was a big missing piece uh, of my education. But it does help if you're also playing an instrument where you can play and hear chords. Yeah, definitely. For uh, your ear, like to hear them stacked on top of each other. Yeah, it's much uh, better, absolutely. Like. I mean, I, I in the early 90s, there was a, 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 an amazing American jazz bass player called Michael Moore and Mike's, Michael's still around. In fact, I'm trying to reconnect with him. His, his last gig was playing with Dave Brubeck in his band. You know, so mm. Michael Moore is, is a, he's jazz royalty. He's, he's right up there. I think he's retired from playing now, but this was in the early 90s, and he was living in London temporarily, and I went to study with him uh, you know, for some technique lessons, but also improvisation stuff, because he, he, he was one of the most lyrical double bass bass, played with a bow. He got me to switch from French to German bow as well, which was a great decision. It felt more natural to me. It's a different way of holding um, it, is it? You hold one kind yeah. of over and one under, is that it? Exactly, yeah. And, and for me, I'd never played with a German bow before. And all of a sudden, because that's what he used, and he gave it to me. And I, saw, and I just thought to myself, this feels so much better to me. I mean, some people say that if you have long arms, the German bow is, is easier to use. If you've got short arms, it's a French one. I don't okay. know if that's legit, but it felt better to me. So that was a, a big thing to begin with. But one of the first things he said to me when we started studying with him, I said, I want to learn more about harmony, improvisation, soloing. And he said, do you play the piano? And I said, no. He said, right, let's start learning the piano then. Because <laughs> he, he could nice. already play. He, mm. he was quite a, a nice uh, jazz pianist. And he had a piano. And I said, listen, I, I know the notes and I know some chords. I said, but he said, well, that's fine. He said, I'm, I'm going to show you. So really, I went to him for, for the for the bass and that stuff. And the first thing he did was, right, let's let's go straight to the piano. Mm. 
So he gave me some piano lessons. We, we talked about chords and the harmonies and what have you. And then sometimes I'd play the piano and he's playing the double bass uh, next to me in, in his music room. And then we'd swap around. But it was that when I realized the, the importance of, of at least doing some study on a chordal instrument, even if you don't want to become a piano player or a full-time guitarist. It's amazing what you, what you can learn uh, and what you can then use on, on the bass afterwards, whether it's, because straight away with guitar, you are dealing with chords. You know, you have to know all of those chords in those shapes, all the notes rather. But also as a guitarist, you know, you, you're, you're playing melodies straight away. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, when I used to get sort of bass books, it was like the first bass line would be dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know, which wasn't very musical or inspiring, yeah. even though I've had to play that a lot over the years. But what I'm saying is the nature of the piano or the guitar, straight away you're, you're understanding and playing chords, you're playing melodies. So I kind of think it's really useful, uh, you know, and for brass players as well, the same thing. And I think if you go to music college, I think they, you're expected to play the piano. It's mandatory in all, yeah. in all colleges, I think, yeah. Sure. So, so that's definitely something. I, I wish I'd done it sooner. I, I wish I'd had piano lessons when I was uh, when I was younger. But um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying playing the guitar now. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that's your next gig in London. Well, a few months <laughs> yeah. give you a chance to practice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we should definitely talk about how the the Jules Holland band came about. Um, is there a story about it, or was it just an audition was posted? Because am I am I right in saying Pino was Pino Palolino was the bass player in the band, and then he was leaving? Yeah. So what happened is that well, when Pino came to London, uh, probably w- way before I did. I think I came here eighty eight. He was already here. So one of I think Pino's very first gig was with Jules because they had the Jules had a band called Jules Holland and his Millionaires. So Pino was definitely Jules's bass player. Um. And, but then what happened is I, when I came to London, I didn't know anybody at all. I, or may, I may have known one or two people. But because I, I, I'd had a good living as a, as a session musician and a working musician for like eight, nine years, but I wanted to do something more creative. One, I wanted to study with people. Again, I wanted to study because I didn't take music at school as an academic subject. I, my, my knowledge of music came through playing the trombone. So for me, I wanted to come to London to be a better musician, to study and to play with creative musicians, to play, play creative music. I didn't just want to be stuck in a studio. I didn't just want to have a piece of paper put in front of me. So, so I came to London and I really wanted to play jazz. And I said to myself, I just want to play double bass. I didn't particularly want to play bass guitar. Mm-hmm. I had it with me. And, and that's what I was doing. I was doing lots of jazz gigs on the double bass. Now, one of the saxophone players that I was working with, uh, a friend of mine called Phil Vicock, he, he, he'd already got the gig with Jules. Because uh, Jules, had, he'd, you know, he'd been with Squeeze and then he'd left Squeeze and he kept going backwards and forwards, but this was the final time now. He was done and he, was, he wanted to be a solo artist. So he'd been, at this stage, he had been using Pino a lot, but he'd also been using a guy called Keith Wilkinson, who was the bass player with Squeeze at the time. So he was kind of, at the end of it, he was, before I got there, he was flipping between the two uh, guys. But anyway, so, um, uh, so Pino had gone off with, I guess, Paul Young or Gary Newman, whoever, and he was starting on his, 
uh, his, his journey. <laughs> ascension into the stratosphere. Ascension is the word, exactly. Uh, and then Squeeze reformed. So Keith and, and the drummer uh, went back with Squeeze because they thought that was a safer bet. Because mm. Jules was starting out from scratch as a solo artist and people only knew him from the keyboard player with Squeeze yep. and on the, on the tube. People didn't know him as a... And bear in mind, this is before the TV, before the radio, before everything. So um, he was then looking for a bass player. He mentioned it to, and the band was smaller at the time. It wasn't the, the size of his name. It was only a nine-piece band. It was five rhythm section and four horns. So what the sax player, Phil, he, we, we're doing a jazz gig one day, and he said, oh, Jules is looking for a bass player. You know, what, would you be interested? And, and I said, well, yeah, I, I guess, I guess. Yeah. But I was kind of happy doing what I was doing suffering from my art i was doing great jazz gigs with great jazz musicians but i wasn't earning a lot of money you were um, really a jazz musician <laughs> oh yeah yeah my goodness and um but then so so what happened is i i was contacted and, and i was told to go to an audition uh and uh, so this was at jules's private studio which is in greenwich which is just down the road from me it's it's literally well it's it's five minutes from where i live now at the time I lived a little bit further away, so it's probably 20 minutes away, but still fairly local. So I went to the, the studio with my double bass. Jules was there with, with the, our guitarist, who's still with us. Uh, and I, I just remember being very nonchalant about the whole thing, because I guess, uh, you know, if you audition for the, the Jules gig now, and he doesn't really do auditions. Uh, I, in fact, I'm the only person that auditioned for that gig. Everybody else got the gig. Um, you know, somebody recommended them and mm. Jules went, okay, come and do a gig and let's hear you. But I think for him, because he'd had Pino and he knew how good Pino was and he knew what, what modern day bass players are capable of doing, he didn't want to take a chance on just hiring me, saying, yeah, come under the gig yeah. and then realizing on the bandstand that I'm, this isn't happening, you know. But also the reason why he was interested in me was because he predominantly wanted a double bass player. Pino only played bass guitar. So this time Jules wanted someone who played upright. So anyway, so, but I, I, I was kind of quite casual because I, I was happy with what I was doing elsewhere. And Jules didn't have the TV or the radio show. So it wasn't like you're entering into the situation where you think if I get this, then I'm going to be on the TV. And I'm yeah, yeah. That, that kind of, of that in context for people listening because... I knew that Jules was in Squeeze and I knew that he was the keyboard player in Squeeze and that, that was way before. But I didn't know that he hadn't started becoming an artist as much on his own right before you joined the band. Yeah, so that's that's pre- right. So lucky to get in at the time. But it, that's yeah, just ser- I, I, serendipity, I suppose they call it, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, and also, I, I think it, it was good because I, I got... That was 91, okay. Well, well I'll, I'll finish the story, but I'll come on to this. But... So, but I was very nonchalant. I mean, not to the point where I didn't care, but I, I wasn't under, like, I didn't feel under pressure because I didn't even know what Jules was doing. I didn't know what gigs he had. I just knew him from the past. I didn't know anything about his his presence. So we just played, me, him, and the guitarist. We just jammed for an hour. I can't remember what. And then at the end of it, Jules said, that was really great, you know, fantastic player, really, really loved what you did. But then he said to me, you know, we do have other people to see. 
And I remember thinking at the time, well, that sounds a bit of a brush off. <laughs> it does, in fairness. It sounds like I was getting the elbow going. <laughs> and I thought to myself, do you know what? I wasn't, I didn't mind at all because I knew I would go back to do my jazz gigs and playing with these great musicians and being very creative and whatever. I really, it didn't affect me. So I'm putting the bass away and uh, Jules and the guitarist went outside for a, a chat and they came back five minutes later and Jules went, oh, you know, to hell with it. The gig's yours. You've got the gig. Uh, and he gave me like a carrier bag full of cassette tapes of like, of gigs that he'd done with Pino and a couple of recordings. And he said, just kind of have a listen to those and get a feel of them and I will be in touch. And that was it. I, I got the gig there and then on the spot. But um, the, the thing is, as I said, this was 1991. Uh, so we ended up just doing some gigs, some universities, university, some college balls, a few medium-sized venues. And it was all very low-key. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is really pleasant. You know? but, and I was still then able to do all the other things I was doing. And I thought, yeah, why not? And then the following year, 1992, is when he got the TV series later with Jules Holland. Um, and then the year later, 93, he got the Hootenanny, the mm. New Year's Eve TV show. Which are institutions now, like those well, shows. It, it, like. Exactly, exactly that. You know, it's, it's been going all that time. We've never missed one. But so all of a sudden, I'd gone from being a jazz musician, playing in little sort of bars and clubs, whatever, to playing in slightly bigger bars and clubs with Jules. And all of a sudden, you're on TV. You know, you're getting these phone calls saying, we need you to come and play with Eric Clapton. We need you to come and play with B.B. King. And I'm thinking this is the weirdest thing I've ever known because I just didn't see, and, and none of us did. None mm. of us knew that this was going to happen. We were just thrust into the situation. And it's like, it's, it's sink or swim. You know, what do you do? You, you know, you say, okay, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Um, and, and the funniest thing is I look back on those very early TV clips and I still had some hair, not much. I, still, I really should have shaved my head sooner because it, it looks pretty bad. But it's just the, the way I'm dressed, because I'd never been on TV before. No mm. one had told me what to wear. I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. And I'm so scruffy. I'm wearing sort of the raggedy, raggedy old T-shirts and really bad colors and raggedy old jeans. I look as though I've just been doing the gardening. Yeah. <laughs> or I've just been under a car fixing an oil leak, you know. But I... <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking of that. What I was thinking of is I'm playing with these iconic and legendary artists. I've got to do this well. So I was thinking about the music, about the instruments, mm. you know, getting into that. I wasn't thinking about, you know, how you good do I look? Yeah, wearing <laughs> this, you know. So it does embarrass me looking back uh, on my wardrobe in those early shots. But what what I'm not embarrassed about is is the, is the performances because, uh, and, and it, it made everyone raise raise our game you know we i mean i've learned so much from all of that tv work and, and not long after that jules got a, his own radio show bbc radio 2 show which um you know i mean it's that stopped a couple of years ago but it went on for quite some time and it's same thing we were playing with the same kind of artists on there adele amy winehouse all of these people so yeah we we like i said it, it lifted us all mm. up you know our own sort of playing all improved and our, and our ears improved and it was and it was an amazing thing but it really was completely unexpected it just came out of the blue um but as you said it, it's you know sometimes i think it, you know a lot of people say to me dave you're so lucky you're really lucky they keep yeah. using this word and i think to myself 
you know, it's the wrong word to use with it. I, I prefer fortunate because luck, the word luck, it, it's, uh, it implies there's no effort. Mm, that's a good point, yeah. Made. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, I'd be lucky. I mean, I don't do the lottery, but let's just say if I had a ticket here now and I just went blah, 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 blah. And I went down to my local shop and put it and I won 10 million quid. Now that's lucky mm. <laughs> because yeah. little or no thought has gone into that. you know. Mm. But the fact is, before the Jules gig, I had been playing for almost 10 years, doing all manner of, of gigs, some, some good, some terrible. You know, so I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I didn't get this on a silver platter straight away. Mm. I've been playing for a long time, you know, and and obviously I'd made the effort to come to London. I knew to fur, to further my career or or just to have a better life. I yeah. knew that I had to come to London. So, you know, there was a lot of decision making there. There was a lot of sacrifices made. There was a lot of time where some of my other mates were in the pub or having a laugh or going to parties, and I'd be at home transcribing or working stuff out. So all of this stuff you know sort of all all came together and um it's like one of my favorite quotes is like the there's a variation i think the the original quote was the harder you practice the luckier you get <laughs> but, uh, but some people say the harder you work the luckier you get you know mm. and i think that's it you know you've just got to be you've got to be doing stuff you've got to be active actively doing things whether it's out there working seeking work studying learning you know, because you just don't know what's going to come yeah. from whatever. I mean, when I came to London, I could have easily ended up living in um, the East London, North East, South, whatever. But because I was predominantly living in South East London, which is where Jules was born, and that's where his studio was, and that's where most of the guys in the band were, that's something else that... that so that, so that, that was quite lucky, I guess. Mm. You know, because that is a bit random. Yeah, that was lucky. But, but the rest, the 10,000 hours you spent... Yeah, practicing before yeah. the audition wasn't looked. Oh yeah, so you know, if if I'd have gone into that audition with Jules that day and I'd have played terribly and out of tune and out of time and bad feel, whatever, that would that would have been the end of that. You know, the the only thing that carried me through was was everything I'd learned the previous ten years. So, uh, so yeah, so that was that ninety one and uh, still here. <laughs> <laughs> it's I love your YouTube channel. I'm going to post it in the description when I put this up. It's like a, a time capsule of everything you've done. Like it's really cool oh, yeah. that you have all those performances on it. Like, I mean, sadly, there's there's lots of stuff that isn't on there. I mean, some of the stuff has been taken down because of copyright, uh, you know. But uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I, I tried to record everything uh, as time went on because you know I just like archiving things. Uh, and but I didn't get everything. There's some of the early stuff that I, that I didn't get. And of course, we did that TV show in the mid '90s with Chris Evans, which was called "Don't Forget Your Toothbrush," <laughs> and that was an interesting because that was like a wacky game show, and we were the house band on there. But we were still playing with some amazing artists. I mean, the first time I got to play with Shaka Khan was on that show, playing "I'm Every Woman Ain't Nobody." Serious basslines with... and those tunes. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, that was the other funny thing with that because. Um, because Jules really didn't want me to play bass guitar. He loved my double bass playing, and that's all he wanted me to use. Now, for Jules's music and for what we were doing prior to that point, the double bass was perfect. So we started to do this Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, and I, I remember we played with Cher, a few other people, and I was playing upright, and it was all good. And then we got the call to play with Shaka Khan, and I was listening, to, and I'm a huge fan of hers. I always have been. And I was listening to the bass lines to I'm Every Woman Ain't Nobody. And, 
And I think Ain't Nobody is not, it's not even a bass. I think it's a keyboard. Mm. And the version that we got of I'm Every Woman wasn't the album version. It was a remix, which is, which is also playing the keyboard. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I'm playing that on double bass. No. There's no way. I mean, apart from the fact it would be borderline impossible, it just wouldn't have sounded good. It would have been really mm. lumpy. And I said to Jules, I said, listen, man, please let me switch for once. And I think he thought I was going to go crazy and start to do all this stuff, you know. Uh, and and, I, and I, so I got the bass guitar, transcribed all the parts. I think I used an octave pedal to make it sound a bit more synth-like. And I think then Jules realized the importance of, of letting me switch. Mm. And, and it's become like crucial now. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to do that, his TV shows, if I didn't play, if I didn't play both. You, know, you play you kind of a hybrid I mean, bass, don't you? Sometimes it's kind of well, it's, electric, yeah. it's acoustic electric kind of thing. I don't know yeah, what. Yeah, what, yeah. What 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 happened there is because the first couple of years of touring with Jules, I used just a double bass for the first three, and it was a nightmare because trying to amplify an acoustic double bass, uh, as as most most bass players will know, it's 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 fine doing it in a quiet environment in a small venue, but we were doing massive massive venues. Uh, and I had to play at a very high volume and it was feeding back and it was going crazy. And I just, and I struggled with this for years and I was using all sorts of different pickups and feedback suppressors and graphic EQs. I had this rack system that was like this big and I'm thinking I'm playing this instrument that was made in the thirties and I'm having to put it through all of this stuff to try and stop it from doing what it's supposed to do, which mm. is resonate. So in the end, I said to Jules, you know, I can't do this anymore. This is killing me. This is it's too much, so much stress. So I also said, how about this? Why, I'll use my double bass. And, and I've got a different one now. I've got one that was specially made for me. But back then I said, let me use my double bass in more controlled environments, like in the recording studio where it's all quiet and I can have a microphone there, or on TV where we're playing in a small unit maybe just two or three or four of us. I said, but on the tours and on the, on the Hoot Nanny show where it's again, big room and it's very loud. I said, mm. are you okay if I use like a stick bass, uh, electric upright bass? And he sort of said, well, as long as it doesn't sound like a fretless bass guitar, he said, yes. He said, as long as you can convince me yeah. that, that this instrument can sound as close to an amplified double bass. Cause even when I was playing the double bass, it still had to be amplified. Okay. So, so yeah, so that's what I, I mean, I used a couple of others, but right now I use the, the Yamaha one and, um, and straight away I changed the strings to my, my preferred brand and I put it through like a particular preamp and a DI thing so I can tweak it. And, and to me, it's the closest that I can get an instrument of that kind because it, it's not really acoustic instrument. It's mostly solid body, this, mm. this EUB, but it's the closest that I can get it to an amplified double bass. And the, the, but the main thing is that Jules was happy. Yeah. <laughs> and it does happy. sound like one. He has to be happy. Well, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty darn close. I mean, and, and he wasn't too worried about the visual aspect of it, but uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's about the practicality of it you know so and also uh, an electric upright bass is a lot more consistent if you play all over the fingerboard it's a, you know there's no peaks and troughs in the notes kind of thing but if you know if you're playing an acoustic instrument certain notes will pop out and other notes will disappear which is which is a bit of a nightmare you know but you know if, if i'm if, if i'm like i said in a more controlled environment or if i'm doing small jazz gigs then i'd much rather use 
my acoustic double bass, you know, mm. without question. But it, yeah, the those EUBs are, are very, very useful. As long as you, uh, you know, some the thing is, there's a lot of cheap ones out there, and they sound what they cost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah. electric guitars aren't aren't like that. You, you buy a buy a cheap one, it sounds good, but yeah, yeah, exactly. To- and also, you're absolutely right. And, and it's the same with bass guitars. You, and, and even to some extent, acoustic double basses, you don't have to spend a lot of money on any of those instruments to get a half decent one. Mm. But ironically, with, with an electric upright bass, the only way that you will get a really superior one of those is to spend a ton of money. It's the, mm. it's the only exception. You know, I mean, the ones I use, they're over three grand, they're three and a half grand. But it's quite similar the, to electric drum kits. The cheap ones sound horrendous, but the, yeah. the high-end ones are actually decent. Sure, sure. And, and the trouble is, I think people people are scared to buy a double bass because it's it's a big investment, uh, you know, because you, you need a great luthier. They need a lot of upkeep. So a lot of people will use an EUB as a, as a stepping stone. But, of course, they don't always want to spend a lot of money on this. But, you know, if you're going to spend 500 quid on an electric upright bass, you're going to be... It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be good. I mean, it's going to be okay maybe to transition, but to actually use it on a gig mm. and, you, and you're wanting that to sound like a, an amplified double bass, you're going to be very disappointed, really. So, um, But, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of those instruments, and I've got a couple of old vintage Ampeg baby basses as well from the 60s, which are really nice. But, um, but yeah, it, they, they've, it's become a necessity, especially for travel. As, as well and and also i do some freelance gigs where i'm in london i, ju- I jump on and off the tube trains mm. and the the yamaha because it packs up and it's not much longer than a, than a bass guitar so it's like when i first came to london i was taking my double bass and an amp on the tube trains oh god <laughs> i've been on them uh, tubes they're not, they're not big at all oh they're... yeah I'm, I'm not doing that again <laughs> i actually had another <laughs> double bass pair on this katie taru american and she never brings her bass on tour she just has to get given one every festival she plays all over Europe. And yeah. sometimes they can be absolutely terrible. Sometimes they can be cool, but it's just a roll of the dice. Like. Yeah, I mean, I've done that before. I've, I've used rented basses. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Because they're, they're, they're very, uh, to me, they're a lot more personal than bass guitars. You know, there's a lot more, you know, the, the, the action, uh, the string action, the, the type of strings they are, because obviously you've got metal strings, you've got gut strings. And synthetic strings i prefer to play gut and synthetic i'm not i used to play metal strings i'm not a fan of them now but more often than not they will be metal strings and the action will be off and the way the bass is set up so yeah they you you can get very unlucky i think when you're using where so in that instance i'd almost rather take my own electric upright mm. bass because i know how that sounds and how it works and stuff and i'd, I'd much rather make that compromise if I need to, so. And is it ever weird when you're backing up at an, a bass player on Jules Holland? Because I saw that you played with uh, Paul McCartney and Sting. And mm. <laughs> was that a strange experience thinking, what will he think of my bass play? <laughs> and he's pro- they're, they're both probably idols of yours as well. Like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a great admiration for them both. But the key thing is, first of all, uh, in, in my experience, I've played with, with Sting uh, a few times. I've played with Paul McCartney a few times. And, and on all the occasions, they've been so nice. They've been really, 